This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. It's two minutes past nine. You're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. You may be listening via the web rrr.org.au. Welcome. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name is Bron Burton. And my name is Dr. Beach. Hi, Dr. Beach. How are you, Dr. Burton? I'm refreshed. You're refreshed. That's good to hear. <laughs> oh, you've been away. I have. Yes. Somewhere sunny? No. Somewhere CE. No. Back is March. I went oh, last weekend. Right. Yeah, with the um, the Australian Boys Choir, the Australian Boys Coral Institute. My little fellow. Coral Institute. There's a marine theme. Oh yeah. <laughs> nice. I never picked that up before. Well done. So I, I had a uh, an amazing weekend walking around um, with uh, some of the boy, well, a lot of the boys from the Australian Boys Choral Institute. This is the also known as the Australian Boys Choir. Um, and uh, for personal reasons, my son is is, is a member thereof. <laughs> Not explaining this very clearly, but uh, yeah, it was a it was an amazing weekend. Went away as part of the caring team for these boys. And um, just this music, walking around in this heady kind of, you know, swirling singing for two days. It was incredible. So you were not listening to um, Doctor Surf and Beach? No, but I did, I did wonder how you were travelling. Oh, it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> we travel well. I know you do. We have a... Um As always, we have a pretty interesting big show coming up. We do. We're going to kick off with you talking about... Uh, Yeah, I'm going to talk about Tara. Tara is a 36-metre schooner that circumnavigated the globe between 2009 and 2013, taking lots of plankton samples. So this is all about plankton, and people might remember that plankton is. My favourite thing in particular, the algae in the plankton. So I'm I'm going to go into that for a bit. 
We're actually going to reunite you and uh, Dr. Surf then at about 25 past nine. I spoke to him yesterday uh, and he's going to give us a surf report because he said the surf's been pretty amazing. Cool. Wants to, I think he just wants to keep talking about surfing. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. And then in the studio after that, we so, are going to have Australia for Dolphins. Yes, CEO Sarah Lucas, and uh, she's going to be talking to us about Australia Dolphins. Um, you might remember, uh, I think it was last year, we had Jordan Solzanovsky from Australia for Dolphins who came in and talked to us about some of the campaign work they were doing. But they have really ramped up and um, been following legal avenues to try and stop once and for all the dolphin um, drive and slaughter that takes place in Taiji uh, and obviously other places as well, but their efforts are focused in Taiji. And um, there's been some landmark uh, moves with their campaign in the last couple of weeks. So uh, Sarah's going to come in and talk to us about that. Very exciting. Yeah, about Wazza and Jazza, or Wazza and Jazza. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Very Australian <laughs> abbreviations, aren't they, acronyms? Uh, and then Chris Mice coming in. We're going to talk about World Environment Day, which is on the 5th of June, as it is every year. So this coming Friday, we're going to talk to Chris about what the VNPA does to celebrate World Environment Day, but some of their marine campaign works uh, and efforts that are going on there as well. And I've got some other bits and pieces about World Environment Day you might be interested in too, Dr Beach. Nice one. And the VNPA, of course, is the Victorian National Parks Association. Thank you. And thank you to Tim while we're saying thank you. We kind of skipped past that. Thank you, Tim, for vital bits. He's otherwise engaged. And I I also want to go on the record and thank Kent for panelling for Dr Surf and me last week at very short notice. Yeah, because I neglected to line someone up for you. Sorry. (laughs) I neglected to check. (laughs) Sorry about that. Oops. Kent's our superhero of Radio Marinara. He always swoops in and, and comes to our rescue. Yeah, there was a little bit of panic at Surf looking at me and me looking at Surf. Like, hey, hey, going, can we panel? No. And th- things to do today is ticking along and it's one minute to nine and you're going, um, there's no one to panel. Let's do the weather and then we've got a bit of news to do. There's been some big news about the Great Barrier Reef, as I'm sure you are all aware already, but we'll um, look at it in a little bit more detail. But first of all, the weather. Yeah, in town today, it's going to be 10 to 15 degrees. Cloudy, very high chance of showers, 95% chance of showers, with possible hail in the southeast suburbs at night. So not, might be able to white stuff later on. Winds northwest, 25 to 35k, increasing 30 to 45k in the morning, then turning west to southwest, west, 20 to 30k in the afternoon. Uh, the tides for today, we have low tide um, oh, at Port Phillip Heads, high tide at 10 o'clock. And we have low tide at about 3 o'clock. Looking ahead just briefly to the week ahead because I know you all look at your smartphones anyway and get the weather very detailed. Do you know what? As I do. I actually remember back mid- midway through the week to to what we looked at. I mean, partly it's because I'm looking at it on Sunday. But I do look, I kind of go, what was today going to be? Oh, yeah, midweek it's going to be sunny or midweek it's going to be rainy. From what we've talked about on Sunday morning? Yeah. That might just be me. <laughs> Wow, I don't remember anything 10 seconds <laughs> after I've said it. I have to be constantly updating my brain. <laughs> anyway, my apologies, I interrupted. Do Tomorrow, showers, minimum of 6, maximum of 13, Tuesday, 7 to 13, and a shower or two. So a couple of showers, possible showers during the week, and it's going to be early, or, you know, 12, 13, 14. So a little bit chilly. As it should be. Yeah. It's winter tomorrow, officially. Mm-hmm. 
I'm rustling a plastic bag, Dr. Beach, because something very special appeared in our pigeonhole this week. It's from Ian from Seaford. Thank you, Ian from Seaford, who dropped in a uh, very porous, somewhat lightweight brown rock and asked, is it volcanic? And um, this is following on uh, some um, uh, news that Angelina and I brought relating to um, massive pieces of pumice that have been washing up along the South Australian coast following a, a volcanic eruption under underwater. When did that happen? When did what happen, the eruption? The, the, the massive pieces of pumice? Um, about a year ago. Right. Maybe nine months ago. I remember that last year. Well, I don't actually remember it, but last year in September we were up near... Perigian Beach, Noosa, and there was lots of pumice on the beach. In fact, I have a nice big chunk sitting in my bathroom at the moment, and that is our family pumice stone. Mm. And Ian from Seaford, I think, I, I ain't no geologist, I'm a biologist, but looking at this and holding it in my hand, it is very light. It's dark, dark, chocolatey brown, and there's lots of little holes over the top, but they look like what might have been bubbles. So to my, I repeat, untrained I I would say yes, it's volcanic. It looks like a it looks like an aero bar made into a rock. Hey, yeah, nice description. Yeah. It's the bubbles of... Yeah, I'm not going to go down that road. I'm not going to chew it, though. <laughs> I got very excited when I saw it. I thought, well, maybe it's a piece of ombergris. Worth about $10,000. I'd be, I'd be getting trying to get back in touch with you, Ian, but no, it's not. It's ombergris, again, comes from... Wales or it does. Amber Grace? Yes. If you watch Bob's Burgers. Bob's, what in the hell is Bob's Burgers? <laughs> it's a, it's a, a cartoon. Do we still call it cartoon? Do we call it animation? Animation. Um, it's, a, you know, it's an animation. It's on at about 10.30 at night on 11. It's actually quite amusing. It's quite funny. Anyway, I won't go into the details of Bob's Burgers. But there, there was an episode on this week where the kids were wandering along the beach and, um, and found a piece of ombergris. And I got very excited at the fact that ombergris had made it into mainstream animation because it's one of those really obscure things. It is. It's basically when a whale di- swallows something and can't digest it, it forms a waxy coating around it and then eventually it expels it and it washes up on a beach somewhere. But it's um, very valuable. It's used by the very high-end perfume um, companies to make perfumes. It's worth a fortune. So a, a rock, kind of medium-sized rock piece of ombergris can be worth $20,000. Hullabalooba. It's kind of like the, uh, the truffle of the sea world i suppose okay very difficult to Even find it's got nothing to do with fungi no hey um a couple of really quick ones so thank you ian from seaford for sending that in that's given us some homework to do this week i want to mention this really quickly and then we're going to go to a track uh obviously really big news this week it's kind of been the so we're talking about unesco and recommendations we've been waiting on this decision for a while about whether or not the great barrier reef needs to be put on the in danger list and uh, all sorts of media interest happening yesterday in interviews with the federal environment minister saying fantastic it's not going to be put on the world environment on the uh, in danger list and we've done all this great work one thing to make a point about this is that the decision's actually not been made yet. The decision actually takes place in about three weeks' time in Bonn in Germany and this is when the World Heritage Committee meets and uh, there are 21 nations on this World Heritage Committee and they decide whether or not to accept this report that's been put together by UNESCO. So, Okay, so the report has been put together but the decision has not actually been made. That's right. So one might argue that... Um, our federal environment minister is jumping the gun a little bit and uh, I mean it's fine for him to celebrate the fact that this is the recommendation in the report but there certainly hasn't been a decision made yet. Greg Hunt. 
Indeed. So just something to note there when you're watching your mainstream reporting of this, the decision has not been made. Uh, it will be made. Of course, if they were to choose to not accept the findings of their own committee, that would speak volumes in terms of lack of confidence in their decisions. So, uh, but anyway, um, green groups around the world are not accepting this right now. Yep. They're saying, uh, yes, they acknowledge that lots of work has been done, but they're still not entirely satisfied that the reef should not be placed on, that it should be placed on the endanger list. And that, of course, is because of the whole background of this, which is digging an enormous amount of coal out of the ground. That's right. And what that is going to do to the atmosphere and to the reef. That's right. And the world in general. So when you look at the reports, you'll see lots and lots of quotes of the amount of money that's being spent and commitments and all this kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, just just note, decision's not been made. It will be made uh, in a few weeks' time. In the meantime, Greenpeace are leading a, uh, a world effort to uh, to draw attention to this and they're starting with a planet-wide petition to UNESCO. They're urging the delegates to continue to keep a close watch on the reef and uh, help protect all the incredible marine life that lives there. So if you are interested in signing this petition, uh, the best thing that you can do is just go to the Greenpeace website and they have committed to personally hand-deliver the petition to UNESCO delegates. Uh, so if you want your name to be counted for the reef and to say we're not entirely happy with uh, this recommendation, you can do that. Join the rest of the planet and do it. I like that description of planet-wide campaign. We usually say worldwide, but I like the idea of reminding us that we are a planet. Indeed. And, in fact, uh, it's interesting, UNEP, the United Nations Environment Program, who actually are they the one, they're the ones who decide the theme for World Environment Day. They're the ones who nominated June 5 as the date for World Environment Day. They've used the planet in this year's uh, theme for World Environment Day, the word planet rather than world. So we'll talk about that when we get to that part of the program. Okay. One other thing, another question I want to ask you, mm. something that we've been talking about particularly last year when we were going into a state election was the potential to have commercial fishing banned in our fair Port Phillip Bay. Can you bring me up to speed on what's happening with that, with the new Labor, go uh, Labor State government? Yeah, all I know <coughs> is uh, when the uh, budget was announced recently that $20 million has been set aside to be used over the next four years for this particular election commitment. Uh, that's all I know at this stage. So it looks on paper like it is still going to go ahead, but in terms of the details, that's as far as I know. So if that does go ahead, then I, being a non-fisherman not a recreational fisherman, and going to have a very hard time getting local seafood myself. From Port Phillip Bay, that's From right. From Port Phillip Bay. <clears throat> so keeping in mind that a lot of fish is also caught outside the heads in yep. Bass Strait, but in terms of actually being able to eat something that from Port Phillip Bay, the only way that will be possible once this actually goes ahead is for you to go and get yourself a recreational fishing licence and go fishing yourself. Okay. Yeah. All right. Quarter past nine, goodness me, uh, you are listening to Radio Marinara. And uh, Dr Beach, you have chosen the first track. Uh, this is from Spirit of Akasha. Last week I attempted to play this track, but I gave Kent, our fair panellist, the, um, the wrong track number. <laughs> and it's, before sorry. those days, well, yeah, it's 3RRR, it's Radio Marinara, and you're with um, Dr Burton and Dr Beach. Indeed. Uh, and before those carts, we heard um, Holly Rankin doing oh. waves from... The spirit of Akasha. Holly Rankin with Dom. D-O-M. Hmm. I'd like to talk... I'm very excited about a paper, a series of papers which appeared in a very recent issue of the journal Science. And this is reporting on the first data set that's come back from 
an expedition by the schooner, a 36-metre schooner called the Tara. The Tara left um, somewhere in France, went into the Mediterranean and then circumnavigated the world, collecting over that three-and-a-half-year period about 200 separate plankton samples. So we're looking at plankton. They're trying to... Well, the idea of this was to get an idea of the diversity of plankton that's out there. The oceans are an amazing community of different organisms about which we know very, very little. This was a very defined, a very concerted effort by hundreds of different people working back in the labs, along with the people that organised this trip on the schooner Tara, which I might add was led by a cell biologist, and I'd like to talk about the, the very interesting reason for that later on, um, to go out and to take samples. So they filtered the, the seawater into seven different size classes, grabbing everything from the tiniest viruses, which are about 20 nanometres in size, and a nanometre is 10 to the minus 9 metres, so it's very, very small, mm. um, up to things, up to very small animal plankton, so they're catching everything in the middle, whether they be bacteria of different sorts, so lots of different types of bacteria which do many, many different jobs of work in the environment and in the oceans in particular, through to the small what we call pico-phytoplankton, so these are tiny, tiny phytoplankton and phytoplankton are the guys that that do photosynthesis. Yeah, so I wanted to say, in terms of definitions, plankton is little tiny creatures that live in the sea. Plankton are things which, yeah, live in the water column. Yep. So they're not sitting down on the bottom or they're not... Well, they can be attached to other particles, but, yeah, they live in the sea. Are they unicellular? They are unicellular. Right, which, which means that's how small they are. So they're basically made up of one cell. Most of them are. There right. aren't. We, call, we also call like the small larvae of animals, um, so sea urchin larvae, oh, yeah. for example, or crustacean larvae, which float around in the water column. And before they settle down and start becoming crabs or sea urchins or whatever, we also call those plankton. Right. And so then with plankton, you split them into phytoplankton, which is, as you said, photosynthetic plankton. So, so the let's plants, call them plants. Yep, the plants and, of the sea. And zooplankton, which are animals. Yes. Z-double-O. Yep. Like you could call them zooplankton. I think technically pronounce them zooplankton, don't you? Yeah. Yep. Yep. So they're the animals. Yeah. So they're the plants and the animals. But on top of that, there are also lots of different what we call prokaryotes. And prokaryotes are bacteria, germs as we're used to thinking of them. But, you know, there are many, many, many bacteria which are not pathogens, which are out there doing very important jobs of recycling chemicals in the ocean, interacting with other organisms. Um, and, yeah, as we said, we also have the very tiny animals. So... They gathered an enormous amount of data. They had a lot of people on board this schooner. I think there were probably six or seven um, to plan this trip. As you can imagine, they had to get a lot of funding. They had to deal with many different people. They called into places like Rio de Janeiro and did a lot of community work. So they had um, kids from the favelas coming out on the ship and doing some sampling for them. They cool. did a data freeze back in 2013, so accumulating so much data and then sending it off to labs to analyse in a genetic sense. And they've, as I said, they've published the first few papers in science. There are some pretty amazing statistics which are coming out of this. So first of all, they were, playing, they were sampling them, taking you know net toes, filtering in different size fractions, looking at those organisms both with microscopy but perhaps the the thing they were concentrating on most was using modern genetics, modern sequencing of DNA codes 
to get an idea of the genetic diversity of the genes that are in those organisms there. There are certain genes that we can use as what we call life barcodes. So there's a particular gene, which happens to be what we call a ribosomal DNA gene, a ribosomal RNA gene, which we can use to essentially identify where an organism is on the tree of life. So what main group it fits into, whether it be a plant plankton, whether it be an animal plankton, and what group it fits into into the many, many different diverse groups of those plankton. With this barcode, they were able to identify about 150,000 eukaryotic organisms, that is higher organisms, so the plant plankton like the phytoplankton and other types of sort of animal plankton that don't necessarily do photosynthesis. So that's 150,000. Before this expedition, the known number of species that we had out there was about 12,000. Wow. So in one fell swoop, they have increased this by 10 or 12 times. Wow. Admittedly, we don't know necessarily what all these organisms look like these are genetic barcodes that we're getting so they're signatures of this diversity out there but it has opened up an enormous amount of it's kind of it's given us a, a level of the diversity which is out there so now that we can go back and look more carefully at these organisms and, and what these barcodes represent yeah they also looked at the interaction between organisms by very sophisticated genetic techniques. They could tell that many of these new organisms were ones which were involved in what we call symbioses, oh, yeah. so interacting with one another. Yep. And it's, it's underscoring, at least for me, how important this phenomenon of symbiosis is, where cells work with one another and that that's what drives evolution. On top of that, we're also having environmental drivers of evolution, so where an organism lives with respect to temperature, salt concentration, acidity, all of these different parameters that one can imagine, mm. are confirmed by this, by this analysis, but it's also showing us just this amazing amount of genetic diversity that's out there. I mentioned at the beginning of this that this was driven by a cell biologist, a guy called Eric Carsanti, who's at the um, European Molecular Biology Labs, and... He is somebody. He is a cell biologist. Generally, work on a couple of different organisms, and they find out many, many different things about those. But I'm finding that people are becoming more and more aware of how much the various, the, the diversity of organisms which we have on the planets, in particular in the oceans, can teach us about cells in general. And then, in particular, if we want to be selfish and start talking about ourselves, about what they can teach us about our own cells. So I found this very, very interesting that this was led by a card-carrying cell biologist to do something which is giving us an enormous amount of data, which many people are going to work on now, to do with the eco with ecology and the environment. With... Um, with We'll have to move on in a second. With um, plankton, are they? How does it work taxonomically? Are they actually named as species? Do they? Does it get down to that level of classification? In in this, uh, yes. So from the barcode, they can well not down to species, but they can get them down to groups. So right. people might have heard of things like diatoms, for example, and dinoflagellates, which are examples of phytoplankton cells. So the plant plankton they were able to show that we have a pretty good handle on the diatom diversity, so they uncovered only two or three times the diatom diversity that we mm. were aware of, <laughs> which seems like an enormous amount. But, you know, in comparison to other groups which they've got these barcodes from, we know that there are weird little guys which are involved in endosymbiosis, that there's probably 20 times the number of these organisms out there in comparison to what we have or what we know about right wow. now. So taxonomists have got themselves some work in the next... 
<laughs> a few decades. Not only taxonomists, but modelers and, you know, anybody who's thinking about evolution or cellular evolution is very, very excited Absolutely. about this. And the potential impact for, uh, for climate change on uh, this as well. Yes, yes. So this is... Because you, know, you mentioned some of those physico-chemical parameters earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome, Dr Beach. That's, yeah, it is awesome. So I encourage anyone who's interested in this to go to Science, um, the journal Science, and this is from the 22nd of May issue. There's a couple of articles which you can get there free without even having to have a library subscription to it. Fantastic. Thanks, Dr Beach. That's okay. In 2012, Sarah Lucas made the life-altering trip to the town of Taiji in Japan where she observed the dolphin drive hunts that were brought to world attention in the 2009 documentary The Cove. Since then, Sarah's been working on creating, building and driving Australia for Dolphins, a not-for-profit organisation that exists to end cruelty and legally protect the smallest cetaceans of the world's oceans. We're very delighted to welcome Sarah to Triple R and to Radio Marinara to talk about Australia for Dolphins, her experiences in Taiji and being on the front line with Rick O'Barry and the results of some sustained pressure and a lawsuit. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Bron. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks so much for coming in. It's great to meet you. You as well. Um, I thought we might start by talking through Australia for Dolphins. I mentioned earlier that uh, I think last year we had um, Jordan Sosnowski. You did, our advocacy director, yes. Yeah. So um, when, I guess for listeners who missed that, let's talk a little bit about your group, Australia for Dolphins. When did you become established? Who are your members? And what do you do? Sure. Well, um, Australia for Dolphins is is based in Melbourne. Um, We started in 2012 after I came back from Japan and and saw the dolphin hunts there. Um, And so we're a very small team. We're just three people in Melbourne. But we have some really wonderful supporters. Um, So we have members and... um, um, we have um, at this stage sort of thousands of supporters in the Australian community. And so, what led you? So, you say you went to Taiji in 2012. Mm. Um, what took you there? Did you see the cove? And is I that did. kind of yeah? And what were you doing at that time? I was actually working in in Belgium at that time, so my background was in economics. So it really was quite life altering, as as you said. Yeah. Um, and um, after I saw the the cove, I kind of got onto Google and started looking at what groups were doing something to try and, and stop the hunts. Um, I'm sure for everyone who's who's seen the cove knows that it's you know very horrific what what happens there. And I found um, Save Japan Dolphins, which is Rico Barry's group. Um, I just got in touch with them in America. And, and asked whether I could come over and help and, and they have a program of you know, people going over and helping to monitor the hunts and document how many dolphins are being killed, etc. And so did you know Rick at that stage? No, I no. didn't know him. And tell us about your experiences. I thought maybe we might talk a little bit about that in, in Taiji when you went to Japan. Just talk us through some of that stuff. So you've, you've decided to go there and, and I guess see it for yourself and to do something... You know, do what you can. I think that's how a lot of people feel once they've seen the cove too. You kind of get this urge to do something about it. Absolutely. And I think what really kind of um, was a big surprise to me going to Taiji was that it was so... It was even worse than what I'd seen in the cove. Um, The cove was a movie, you know, I think like for many people that, you know, I had tears running down my face watching it. Um, And when you when you get to Taiji, what you realise is it's it's the same. It is, you know, an accurate depiction of what goes on, except that it's going on, you know, not for for five minutes, as you see it in the film, but for, you know, sometimes for days. 
this kind of process of capturing the dolphins and um, rounding them up and, and then stabbing them. So I, I went over to, to Taiji actually just wanting to find out more about the issue, but I certainly was very inspired to, to do get more involved in it once I'd seen it for myself. Yeah, so was it at that point that you came back and decided to set up your own group? It was. Right. And I, I wanted to set up a group in Australia as well because um, the group that I'd gone over with was American and us Aussies are all, you know, big dolphin and, and whale lovers and I thought the people here would be really passionate about it. And you've stayed, you stayed in touch with Rick O'Barry during this time, did you? Yeah, yeah, so I didn't actually meet Rick on my first trip to Japan, but um, we collaborated. So when Australia for Dolphins was set up, the first um, project that we actually worked on was in relation to Angel, who um, some people might know as the albino dolphin who was captured a year ago. And um, Rick and I, well, Australia for Dolphins and Rick's group, collaborated on a project to help try and get her out of the aquarium, which is an awful aquarium that she's in now. And I got to know Rick quite well. So much of the time I've spent with Rick has sort of been on trains to and from Taiji. But, um, yeah, he's a very wonderful and inspiring person. So you've sort of gone from that to building up this group and now you've got sort of thousands of people supporting what you're doing. And it's this is where it get, the story gets really interesting, I think. So you've gone from your personal journey, your sort of leading a, a group that's supporting and advocating. At what point did... So let's talk about the lawsuit because I think this mm. is an appropriate time. Where, where did this come come from where did you decide to let's let's look at some legal avenues here I think the, um, one of the things I had you know that I observed when I went to Taiji was I couldn't quite work out how Japan on the one hand is a very very developed country with animal welfare laws that in many ways are stronger than our own and the people in Japan are you know very much like Australians when you talk about dolphins to someone in Tokyo you know they love them and it's really hard to square that with this kind of horror out in the open this terrible animal cruelty that happens in Taiji and it was that kind of observation that led us to sort of look at the Japanese animal cruelty law and whether there was anything that could be could be done Um, and once we sort of worked out that we wanted to to explore a legal avenue we um, we brought on Jordan who's a, a very brilliant strategic lawyer and she started like looking at all the options and um and that was how we sort of developed the legal strategy which which we ended up going with which is in um switzerland against the world association of zoos and aquariums yeah so talk us through that what what was the legal strategy that you developed so it's it's you wouldn't think that a a body that's in switzerland would have much to do with the japanese dolphin hunts but it's WAZA, which is the World Association of Zoos and Aquariums, is actually quite central to it all. Um, WAZA, so it's the world's peak zoo body. And it's huge. There's 1,300 members. That's not 1,300 individuals. 1,300 zoos and aquaria around the world that are members of this association. Exactly. Yep. Um, and it also has big regional associations as members and one of those is the Japanese Association, which has numerous aquariums which buy from Taiji. And um, for, for people that don't know this, the real kind of motivator of the hunts is the capture of dolphins for aquariums. So the key to stopping the hunts is stopping the demand for live dolphins. Mm. And we thought that if, if Waza were to take some action against its aquariums, which buy dolphins, you know, that would have a huge effect. It would, it would cut out that demand. But 
NGOs had been sort of trying for a long time to get Waza to act on, you know, to take some disciplinary action and it proved quite difficult. They're a bit of an old-fashioned organisation and were moving a little bit slowly. When we first started talking to Waza about a year ago, we met with when we met with them in Switzerland, and we worked out that more pressure needed to be applied. So we decided to um, launch a legal action in in Geneva against Waza. It was a misleading and deceptive conduct case. Um, basically, we argued that. Waza um, could no longer claim that its aquariums meet the highest standards of animal welfare and adhere to a strict code of ethics when it had numerous aquariums as part of its organisation, which were buying from these very cruel hunts in Taiji. Right. And so what happened? So you put this to Waza and, and what happened? Yeah, it was quite stunning how it all, all developed. Um, we launched the lawsuit and a week later Waza suspended the Japanese Association and issued an ultimatum to, to the Japanese Association, which was you know, either you have, to, you have to stop buying dolphins from Taiji or you're going to be expelled at the end of the month. But Sarah, was there any kind of response from from Waza, so the World Association of Zoos and Aquaria, like, oh, duh, thanks for pointing this out. We hadn't noticed this. (laughs) (laughs) Or was it only once things got legal that they actually had to take it seriously? Because I noticed, I read in your press release too that um, you, it says that um, that for more than ten years, member organisations have been pleading with Waza to stop their um, organisations from taking dolphins for Taiji. So this, as as Dr. Beach was just saying, it's not it wasn't news to them. They knew and they knew there was a mounting campaign, but it was only once things got legal they had. To, is that right? Is that they had to take it seriously? I I believe so. Yeah. Um, certainly, Waza had um, condemned the slaughters, the, the actual killing of the dolphins. But what animal welfare groups were trying to get them to do was to condemn the live captures because you know it was as an aquarium body and that's really what's relevant yeah. to what Waza does and um, however you can sort of see it a bit from Waza's perspective if they were to condemn taking dolphins out of the wild that would set a precedent to condemn taking other animals out of the wild and this is something we you know we met with all of Waza's sort of top people and it was this was something that came up a lot you know we take anim, all sorts of animals from drive hunts how do you expect zoos to be able to stock zoos if you can't take dolphins from the wild you know you can't take other animals from the wild so there was like quite a bit of reluctance to speak out about the slaughters and, and until the lawsuit really put them in a place where they had to decide which side they were on yeah it's absolutely amazing. Do you think this is the beginning of the end for dolphin hunting in Taiji? I do. I do think it's the beginning of the end. It, Jazz's decision, so the Japanese Zoo Association agreed not to buy dolphins from Taiji anymore, um, and this cuts out overnight probably about 40% of the demand for dolphins. So there still is an international market but certainly the you know the incentives for the hunters to keep doing these hunts has been cut a lot. Yeah, what's the response been like from Rico Berry? I think I know the answer to that question. <laughs> yeah, he's he's obviously thrilled. He's yeah. been working a very long time to to get to this result, and he's met with Wadza as well, um, as well as Japanese colleagues. Um, so yeah, completely thrilled, and years and years of work for him. So yeah. it's fantastic. Oh, that's wonderful. Does he have does he have plans? To come back to Australia at any at any stage he was over here a few years ago when the co first came out I actually asked him recently um, we Australia for Dolphins also works on an aquarium up in Coffs Harbour Dolphin Marine Magic which um, 
and and Rick had been and visited in the 70s and I asked him do you think he could come out again and he said he would try to so great oh well yeah. if he comes to Melbourne we'd love to have you both in here oh absolutely if we can continue this discussion what's next for you with this particular campaign well, we're still, um, the legal action with WAZA is still pending. Um, so we go into negotiations now with, with WAZA and, you know, we're really focused on making sure that the, the promise by the Japanese associations is, is carried through and also that other aquariums, which are part of WAZA, stop buying dolphins from Taiji as well. Well, all credit to you, Sarah and Jordan and your team. You've only, there's only three of you. I know you've got a board of advisors behind you as well, but I just find it, it's just such an extraordinary story and that this small team from Melbourne has been able to affect such a massive change which is going to affect, which immediately, you know, affects such something that's been going on for decades and that has created such a worldwide uh, upset and that, that you've managed to pull this off. So just wonderful. Oh, thank you so yeah. much. How, how are you going to be celebrating World Environment Day this week and World Oceans Day next week? I think a glass of wine will be on the cards. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> we were certainly all, all jumping around the room when we when we heard the decision about the Japanese aquarium, so I think we'll just continue that, that celebration. Yeah, and if our listeners want to get involved and join your group, um, how do they do that? How do they lend some support to what you're doing? Sure, probably the best thing would be to, to get onto the, the website, which is afd.org.au, and you can find out plenty of information and lots of sort of opportunities to get involved on there. Great. Thanks so much for joining us, Sarah, and Thanks. telling your story. And please stay in touch because we really want to see how things go. Great. Um, yeah, wonderful. Thanks so much, Bron. We've been um, speaking with Sarah Lucas, uh, CEO of Australia for Dolphins, and we'll put those links on our Facebook page. Estamos escuchando Radio Marinara en tres triple R. We're going to uh, quickly cross to Dr Surf for a uh, somewhat delayed, but we've got him anyway, Surf Report. Good morning, Dr Surf. Morning, Bron. How are you doing? I'm very well. Great. Give us a 30-second surf report. It's going off. (laughs) (laughs) The last three days have been magnificent. Not quite as good today. It's the the wind's up into it and the soil direction's changed a little bit. But Friday, Saturday were as good as it gets. Your uh, your mate Mick Sowry has been um, putting a whole lot of uh, pictures up on social media of um, one perfect wave after another yeah. <laughs> from town, I'm, his I'm side of town. I'm happy to be taking today off because this month has been magnificent and I'll always say there are three constants in life, death, taxes and fantastic surf in Victoria in May. <laughs> come true again. <laughs> awesome. All right, well, we might leave it at that, but thanks, yeah. Dr Surf, and thanks for sticking around. <laughs> Like I said, it's my day off today, so good luck to all those that are going down. I will say one thing, head west, because it's going to get very windy and you need a sheltered place. There you go. Thanks, Dr Surf. We'll catch you in a couple of weeks. Okay. All right. See you. It's going off. It's going off. And head west, young man. Indeed. Hey, someone else Someone else is going off is Chris Smythe from the Victorian National Parks Association. Yes, you can smell me from... (laughs) (laughs) Not in that sense, Chris. Oh, Okay. I'm sitting right next to you. And you're yeah, look, I'm okay. shower this morning. Going off in a good yeah. way. How are you? I'm okay. Great. Good hey, to be here again. It's good to have you here as always. Hey, it's World Environment Day this um, coming Friday, 5th of June, and then World Oceans Day three days after that. Thought we might spend a few minutes talking about World Environment Day, but then talking about VMPA as well. They have a different theme every year. So this is UNEP, the United Nations Environment Program, and this year's theme is uh, Seven Billion Dreams, One Planet, 
Dr. Beecher said I'd come back to the word planet. That's right. Yep. Seven billion dreams, one planet, consume with care. So a lot of the stuff that's on the uh, the UNEP website is um, about wastage, uh, food wastage in particular, and it's extraordinary um, without going into all the details, but some of the statistics that they pump out uh, in terms of food waste and loss reaches an astonishing 1.3 billion tonnes per year on a planet scale. Hmm. So uh, it, it's it's amazing when you look at that and um, some of the statistics around that. So oh, look, I'll read a couple of them out, uh, and that goes on in this report, which is written by the uh, UNEP executive director Achim Steiner. He says, aside from the warp logic of the world throwing away one third 